we've been dealing with uh, this week, past couple of days, just build and deployment issues on a big Salesforce org with several developers. That's always fun. It's just, it's an unsolved problem. I mean, there's some partial solutions out there, but again, it's, the, it's just the metadata model is not conducive to, uh, de- you know, repeatable, dependable, uh, item potent deployments. Deployments, deployments, deployments. <laughs> it's always an issue. Hey, did I tell you coin is supposed to be shipping? No, it's not dead. It's not dead. It's not dead. Stop looking over here. Stop looking at my Mac technique. Damn it. You sound like you're far away. I am. I'm stretching. Stretching. Trying to get comfortable. So coin finally shipped. Is that what you're saying? How is that not dead? Especially with Apple Pay. (sighs) Yeah, it might be too late for it, but... And I didn't even get the email on it. I didn't get an email saying, hey, we're starting to ship your stuff. It was uh, an article on TechCrunch that said, hey, they're finally shipping to, to a lot of people. But the demand's been high. I mean, a lot of people have registered and paid for one of them, and... I don't know. We'll see. They have a um, cool website that has some super annoying scroll jacking. Those are fun. So yeah, maybe I'll get a coin soon. Just in time to have a coin and an Apple watch and everything else that does payments. I mean, if my, so if I can just tap my phone on something to pay, I guess, I guess when you're in a restaurant or somewhere, you still have to hand a credit card to someone. I guess coin is. Yeah. I mean, that, that's going to change soon, too, though. I think, I think we'll start to see, you know, tiny little devices in the waiter's hand, and all they do is tap it and pay for it. That seems a bit impersonal, doesn't it? That to pay that way? To pay with your phone? How's that impersonal? Is there something personal by handing someone a credit card and having them walk to the back room with your credit card? I don't know. It feels like you're getting service. It feels like you're... you're, you're Someone provided a service and you're saying, here, I'd like to pay you for that service. And there's like this interaction that goes on and then you sign the paperwork and it's, 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 it's almost like going to like a kiosk and saying, give me food and hear beep and then walk away. It it just seems impersonal. It doesn't feel like, like this, this experience. Mm. I don't, you you can, you get some kind of romance out of the process of handing your card, getting us or getting a receipt then handing your card over then getting more slips of paper back and then signing them and giving those and. I do. Because then what else will we talk about when we're sitting there <laughs> after we've eaten? What are we talking that's about? What, that's what we talk about. We talk about how the sl- waiter's slow or where's our check and where is that person and we got to go and, you know, we'll miss out on all that excitement. I mean, how would you do Apple Pay like at a restaurant? Would they bring you, they'd probably have to bring something out to you and then you tap your phone to it and then you, you do your thumb so that it authorizes. But then probably on, where do you enter like the tip amount and stuff like that? Can you do that on your phone with Apple Pay yet? I've never seen a screen like that. I don't know. I mean, you might just, it, the screen will probably ask you, because I've seen things like this before where you pay electronically and the screen, and the screen it gives you some options like 10, 20, 15%, and you just check whichever one you want, and then that gets added to your total, and then you pay. Yeah. So that's probably what it'll be like. And it'll probably go even a step further, and you'll, at the table, you'll have some device, and, and then you'll just pay with that. I don't know. That just seems really impersonal. I think I like- I don't think it's impersonal. I mean, someone's bringing you think something, and you're- I mean, experience. if you want to be personal with someone, then then talk to them while during that whole process of them serving. I do. You. I interact with the wait staff, okay, the so waiters. There's and... nothing impersonal about the whole thing, then. Yeah, I guess. I mean, if you want it to be more personal, to bring them cat, bring them dollar bills, and just hand them a dollar bill one at a time. 
You're going to get a real personal <laughs> transaction there. Here, come hang out with me. Yeah. I can't, I can't be the only one feeling that way. I don't, I, there's as nothing we, as personal we move to more about ele- someone sliding your credit card and like a printer printing out slips of paper and someone handing you a disgusting greasy pen and you, you know, writing your name on it in a number. That's not, there's nothing personal about that. Sometimes. And th- I just think it's just something you're so used to. I guess, I guess the, the personal service you get doesn't really matter anyways, because half the time you order something, they take your order, they maybe bring, they maybe bring your drink. Sometimes, a lot of times, someone else brings you your drink. They took the order, food, someone right. else brings it, yeah. and then someone else brings you your food, and like, yeah. you have like this team of people, and you're like, well, who am I tipping here? Everyone. I mean, you're always, that's the way, I think most restaurants work anyway, when you tip, you, you know, because the, the waiters and, or servers, whatever they're called now, they have to tip out, so the bartender gets their part, the, even the, I think the, the, the busters and stuff get participate in the tip out. Mm. Should have stopped tipping. Europe doesn't tip. Yeah, we so should, we should join Europe and not tip. Do you tip your baristas? Well, you're not supposed to tip baristas according to the official etiquette experts. Because they're not giving you a personal service. They're just they're just handing they're just you doing stuff. their job, right. But see, yeah. that's the what they're restaurants have become. You. They just they take your order and then they just serve you. Well, they should be um, they should be coming and checking on your meal, seeing if you need extra drinks, seeing if you need napkins. Seeing yeah, they wait in the corner until I put something in my mouth and then run over really quick and go, "How's it taste? How is it?" And you're just like, mm-hmm. "You get you either do the thumbs up or the head shake." Take smaller bites. I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Food. It's good. <laughs> I can't talk right now. Ah. <laughs> uh. Coffee. That okay. brings me to my next topic. All right. Uh, so I saw in Gizmodo this article that talked about uh, a post that I guess one of the astronauts posted of coffee in space. And it comes out of the little tube because, of course, you got to drink it out of a tube. Otherwise, it's everywhere. And it's like this perfect little sphere of coffee. And then, you, and, then, and then it goes on to talk about, well, how'd they make that coffee? There's no, there's no running water up in space. I actually saw this. They had like an espresso machine in the, yeah. with that one knob. It's like, do you want single pole do you want an americano or what were the options i don't know but it's p it's p coffee man oh it is p coffee it is p coffee where do you get you have to recycle the water there's you can't you can't take that much water in space to waste so you have to recycle it don't they they're they've been recycling their pee for a while right oh yeah okay. yeah it's it's nothing new yeah they've been doing it i mean they're in a sealed thing so it's not like the moisture is evaporating out anywhere so why not just keep reusing that water Right. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you feel about that? Do you think you'd, it'd take a while to get used to, but then you'd just forget about it, right? It's science, man. You would forget about it, though, right? God, I can't believe I don't have a science clip. I need to get us something with science. Oh, like a weird science. Yeah, science. Um, so, anyways, this is yeah. one of those things that leads you to another thing. So, in the article, it talks about like what's the world's most expensive coffee, and it mentions this Kopi Luwak. I guess is how Kopi you Luwak. pronounce Kopi Luwak. See, I know what it is. What do you know about it? I know exactly what it is. <laughs> it's I was unaware coffee. that this even existed. These little lemur creatures in Indonesian jungles eat, co- eat coffee cherries, poop yeah. them out, and then they go and collect the poop and brush, you know, kind of brush the poop off the coffee seeds, beans, and then roast them. <laughs> and that's considered the best coffee in the world. It depends on who you ask. It's the most expensive that I know of. But. Well. Does an expense translate to, 
Well, maybe, maybe the expense comes from no, harvesting definitely. it, having to find the little, the little poops and harvesting it. And, uh, I mean, wouldn't you charge a lot to, to do that? Oh yeah. I charge a lot <laughs> to, to go through it, go through an animal's poop yeah. for beans. I think it's like 50, hundred bucks a pound. Something wow. like that. So now we just need to bring that full circle. So you get your poop coffee beans in your pea water and you bring that together and now you're, you're, you're completely green. You are fully in the chain of recycling that. I guess so. You, you can, go to, you can yeah. go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning and tell yourself how great of a person you are for all yeah, that recycling that's true. you did. It's a good way to celebrate to Earth Day. Isn't that today? Uh, it's today, this weekend? It's not it's today. It's today. Today it is. is Earth Day. See? I knew there was a reason yeah. I was being so topically... Uh, go eat some coffee turds then, John. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to celebrate Earth Day. Coffee turds. <laughs> Now, when I first read that, because the article was unclear about what did the eating. So when I first thought it was like beans, they were eaten and defecated and then pulled and roasted. And in my head, I'm thinking there's some place where people eat a bunch of beans and poop them out and then pick them out. But it's actually an animal that does that. What's oh, the civet. Yeah. Yeah. Does, does that make a big difference? Sure. I mean, all the enzymes that that. OK, so you have. No, to- I'm just saying it. It, it, does it make a big difference whether it's human poop or animal poop? Probably so. I would I would say they'd probably taste different. I wonder if anyone's done that experiment. Probably so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the thing is, a, a coffee cherry, like a fresh coffee, they call it a cherry. It's not really a cherry, but it's got this, like, it's like a, it looks kind of like a cherry. It's got like a fruit or like a pulp on the outside of it. Have you ever had one? No. Because they, they, I mean, real, I mean, at least a good coffee, it's, it's only, it can only be grown fairly close to the equator. I mean, the closest place I'd probably ever be to actual fresh coffee fruit, it would be Hawaii. It's not any good anyway, though. Um, But that's got to be, usually it's fermented off. Um, It's like they go through the like fermentation and there's, there's a wet process and there's a dry process. I won't get into that, but um Oh, we know what the wet process is, but <laughs> but by the end, yeah, that that's got to be um, the the pulp has got to be completely removed, uh, and I'm sure that that digestion process um, kind of takes care of that. Well, I doubt you'll find that that at your local Starbucks. I you never know. I don't think they have it though. It'll be it'll be their version of the gold Apple Watch. Is your your uh, expensive poop coffee? Yeah. And all the little hipster nerds will be there. Sipping. There, there was a, um, the, the bucket list movie. I think that's what it was. I can't remember. That was a, a Jack. What's the guy's name that played the Joker? Jack something. Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. There's a movie that he's in where, and he, that's his favorite coffee drinks it all the time. It's really? not a bucket list. I don't think it's something else. Hmm. I could be wrong. You often are, sir. And what is this? What's your next thing here? Name the cat. Oh yeah. Yeah. I thought we played a little game here. I I did my earlier on Twitter. Um, Benioff posted a picture of himself and the caption on his, on the tweet, the Twitter tweets, twits, tweets. I think we're calling them tweets, right? They're tweets. Yeah. Tweets. A real New York moment with dinner at Nobu. This is in New York and he's, he's surrounded by his, his pals, his buddies, his best friends. So we have a Mark Benioff himself. Looking, looking, uh, huge. I mean, he's towering over these people. He's a tall guy. What is he? I think he's like six, six. Yeah. He's, he's tall. So he's got all these little guys around him and, and he's, he's standing, standing right to- next to Chris Rock. 
<laughs> and Chris Rock like, short. It looks like a child. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Rock, of course. I think every time I see Chris Rock, there I I think of a few things about him. Some of them things I won't mention because he pisses me off. But another thing he always says is he prefers syrup. And I'll leave it at that. Okay. Because <laughs> it's not safe for work. Mm. Yeah. There's a few guys. Uh, he's got David Blaine on here. Um, JR. I don't know who he is. He's some photographer. Um, I guess well known. I guess I'm not not cool and hip to, to what he does. Blaine, of course, is a magician. And um, who's this other guy? Guy or Siri. I think I looked him up because I didn't know who he was. And I think he's like some kind of big music agent or something. Yeah. He's some super elite. Like, uh, what do you call them? Reps? Or rap yeah. or whatever. So we've got a bunch of rich we've dudes. we got comedy, well, I don't know. music, ma- magic, illusions, and art, and tech. So were they there together or did they just like all run at each other at the, uh, at the door there? And Who knows? Maybe they're all sitting there waiting or what? They're all chummy, you know, hands on everyone's elbows and everything, or shoulders. What's interesting is you can tell there are multiple people taking their photo. Oh yeah. Cause they're all pointing in different, different directions. Yep. So here's my theory. So I think this is all in preparation for, for something big. You've got Chris Rock providing the distraction to the audience. He's doing his thing. You got David or yeah, David Blaine doing the illusions, the smoke and mirrors. Benioff's here. No, he's over there. He's over here. You have um, this little JR art taking pictures and you got the music guy in the background. It's, I think it's like this it's huge good. show production. We'll see at Dreamforce yeah. and, and Benioff will pop out of nowhere <laughs> a like, a, like a magician and there'll be pictures on the walls and on the screens just, just distracting you here and there. That'd be awesome, man. Hey, Dreamforce is all about smoke and mirrors, That's right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's got the best in the business. Yeah. So, yeah. Maybe this is that's all in preparation really, for, for that's us. That's an interesting theory. I hadn't thought of us. that. Yeah. That's my take on I was, it. I was bored up until that theory. <laughs> <laughs> I could have gone the boring direction. I was like, this is in preparation for the next quarterly meeting and the smoke and mirrors and all that. But I thought, nah, Benioff's a rock star, man. He, he likes to, he likes to get out there and, and put on a good show. Yeah. Why was knowing we're in any color whatsoever? Isn't that weird? I just it's New York, that. man. That's the dress code. No, it's not. That's the hip dress code. No color. It's like smiling in pictures. You can't smile in pictures. Yeah. Why is Chris Rock smiling? He's not supposed to be smiling. I don't know if that's it's a supposed smile. to be all thuggish in your black clothes and yeah. everything. He's not smiling because he just ate some bad sushi. He's not feeling too well. <laughs> Is that what they serve there? Yeah. Oh, well, okay. That's an interesting theory. I like it. Let's see what happens. I took a survey. Another one. You well, I didn't survey? take the last survey, the Stack Overflow survey we took, but I took another survey. Okay. And this one came to me by way of email. And it was a Salesforce UI design guidelines survey. That's a mouthful. It is. So apparently Salesforce is trying to get some feedback on UI, you know, what type should what type of guidelines should we have? What's out there that you're using? What would you like to see? Um, those kind of things. And I took the the questionnaire and it, it the survey and it, it had some basic questions about who you were, I guess, to fill the demographic part or portion of it, which is, you know, who you were, what company you work for, how many employees, all the standard stuff that you get up front. 
And then it got into some of the things like, you know, what kind of technologies do you use? Are you proficient in, you know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript? And I actually named them all because it was a very short list. It was HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Apex, and Visual Force. Those were the only things that were listed. So I thought it was interesting to see that they're starting to, or I'm not sure if they're starting to, or, or if at least they have someone putting some attention on the UI, trying to get some feedback, hopefully start to put out some guidelines. Hopefully this is leading to a new UI where they are going to have published additional guidelines around that. I think, I think we're due for one. You know, if I was in charge of Salesforce's UI, I think the absolute last thing I would do would be to survey Salesforce customers about the UI. Can you imagine like Apple doing a UI about, Hey, what or survey? Can you imagine yeah, what, what, uh, what UI would you like to see on our next, on this new watch we're introducing? Of course not. You're never going to innovate that way. True. I mean, we're all getting, not we're all going to come up with different ideas of things that the way we want it for the way we work, and it, it may not necessarily be the best way for the the this task is, at this hand. This is kind of a classic enterprise software thing. You know, you you survey everyone's opinion on UI, and then you get you know PeopleSoft as a result, or what Salesforce is becoming. I did. I they did have a few spots where you you could actually put in a few comments. You know, it wasn't just a multiple choice most of it was but if there's a few places where i could inject some comments and don't laugh i was i was nice i didn't i didn't use any f words or anything like no, that i was actually thinking of um you'd uh you'd end up with a net suite oh <laughs> still on that you should do a different survey for each screen of the application and take the results and you know, teach treat each screen as a as a different mm. thing <laughs> that's what that's what it looks like NetSuite did All right <laughs> Uh, so this, for those few questions that I was able to interject some of my own thoughts, um, one of them was, you know, what would you expect out of the style guidelines? And I, I think I covered it as brief as I could. And that was, you know, the typography, the white space, you know, the spacing and things between things, you know, color schemes and things like that. And then the other one was geared more towards components, like what type of components, you know, and that was kind of, was this a, for developers? What? It seemed like it was for developers because okay. it had very developer specific things, you know, questions, you know, around what tools and things like that that you use. So it's like, like 99.5% of the people that would complete the survey would not know how to intelligently answer those questions. Yeah. And I think it probably came to me by way of some registration that I did where I, I was flagged as a developer and who knows, maybe, maybe it came from Dreamforce. Maybe they got the list from there. I don't know. But anyways, and in, in where I was able to interject there, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think Salesforce needs to provide components at a very base level, you know, things like a calendar or like a, you know, like a ca calendar input or, you know, a time input or, you know, just the basics, the, the combos and all those kind of yeah, things, I'm but so allow that problem, but allow hooks into it so that we can do what we need with them rather than, you know, right. Here's this field. And the only way you're going to get the standard native Salesforce, you know, date picker is if you use one of those tags or if you use one of those, one of the predefined fields, you can't create one. Right. It has to be linked to a, an right. S object date field. And so you either kind of reuse an object just to get the value and get the UI, or you have to roll your own or, you know, use another tool like jQuery UI or something. Or you just use JavaScript to access their undocumented yeah. thing that pops up. Which is dangerous because yep. it's undocumented and they but can change it at any knows, point including time. Including Salesforce professional support. They've been yeah. doing it for, I don't know, eight years, six years, eight years. So that was where I, I really kind of just said, you know, hey, we need these basic components, but we need, you just need to provide them at the base level. Don't do all this kind of magic value add. We know how to use them. Let us use them. You know, 
I gave I gave Squid a shot out in it too. I said Squid's a good example of is the style of components that you can customize and hook into and, and do all those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, there's some benefits. I mean, you know, the thing with the visual force components is they, they tie those visual force components are tied into a lot of the rest of the Salesforce infrastructure. So like the security model, um, like they'll automatically just like not show up if the user doesn't have access to them or they'll, or they'll show up as like read only. Right. And not let them edit them, stuff like that. Um, and that's true of field levels, but I don't see why they couldn't just have a component that says date picker. And all of the components support, I believe, like being able to render an error message for themselves, right? Yeah, but even even custom components and things like that you create can do that. I know, I'm just saying it's it's all automatic. You don't even have to right. really think about it with those visual force components. I'm not saying that's good or that trade-off is the right trade-off. That's just the one they made. Well, I mean... Obviously, the the way they created those components and the way they created Visual Force from the start was very tied into the data model. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that they forgot or decided not to. But when it comes to custom UIs or ISVs out there who are wanting to create, you know, custom applications in the Salesforce platform but want it to look native, want it to feel native, I don't think that they did enough to to meet those needs. Yeah. And hopefully with, you know, things like lightning and things like that, we're, we're starting to see some change in that, but we'll see. Time will tell. Yeah. And that's, it's going to be a long time before lightning, you know, replaces the standard UI and visual force. And if ever, I mean, who knows? I mean, right, I'd like right. to see process builder take over for workflow, but there's always going to be someone who's still using workflow as a legacy tool or just never got off of it or just chose never to, to start rebuilding things in process builder. And that's what happens when you move into enterprise, you know, change becomes slow and difficult. You're not able, you're not as nimble as you could be before. Well, that's true. And, and well, and with the technology that Salesforce exposes to its customers, change is incredibly difficult because the whole metadata model and, and nothing, you know, things can't be renamed and heaven forbid, if you've had to do a managed package, you're really locked in. You're not changing anything. You, you have to just start a new system altogether and deprecate the old one. All right. Well, speaking of Squid, I got to do a little demo of some stuff I did this week, and by surprise, one of the one of the Squid guys was uh, in attendance of that meeting. It was actually for a client, and I guess they were wanting to show Squid some of the stuff that they've done internally with their system. So I got to do a little demo. I think it went pretty well. It was well received. I was they, told it went really well. So what was the point of that? Were they trying to get anything out of Squid? No, it was just a, you know, I think Squid right now is collecting a lot of user stories. I think leading up to Dreamforce and some of these other conferences, they're hoping to kind of showcase what their customers are doing with Squid, those type of things. Because there there have been a number of other emails from this client where he's asked me questions about, you know, how much of how much is Squid actually saving me time wise? How much is, you know, is it really better to do this or that? Or, you know, those just those type of questions. So so I, I feel like like those questions are coming from somewhere else, not from him directly. And so I wonder if, if Squid is kind of going out and doing a survey and trying to figure out, you know, because it would make sense if you're going to go to Dreamforce and show your, your product, you're going to want to show what other customers are doing with it as well. Yeah. Case studies. Yeah. So, and, well, and the, the person that was in attendance, um, I'm going to butcher his name. It was Joel Newts. I'm going to say Newtson because Nutson sounds <laughs> doesn't sound right, but I'm going to say Newtson. K N U T S O N. Hopefully, he doesn't mind being called out. 
with his name spelled on top of that <laughs> publicly. No, he's a, he's a he's a squid customer success uh, person. Don't you love how all these <laughs> all these companies in the Salesforce ecosystem copy all these terms? Everyone's now got a. I mean, every Salesforce partner, whether they're a consulting partner or an ISV, they've all got customer success managers and yeah. some of the other things. They say the same things. And what's even worse is they copy Salesforce's their, like their PS groups implementation processes, which are like super water, waterfall and terrible. Maybe it's because uh, Salesforce is putting some money down the table. So they. <laughs> I just think it's lack of leadership on the part of most of those partners. Really? I yeah. mean, I think it makes sense to have someone who's there to help customers get the most out of your product. Oh, and what do no, you call that person? I, I was talking more about like the process, the fact they just, no, oh, let's just do it the way Salesforce does it. Mm. It's just a, it's a, it's a vacuum of, of innovation and in, in having your own ideas and opinions and leadership. Well, I can't say squid is doing what Salesforce is doing. I mean, if Salesforce, if Salesforce's PS group was killing it and had like, you know, badass, at, you know, some kind of, agile process they've customized to implementing Salesforce or whatever. That, that'd be one they, story, but they don't. They say they do internally and they say oh, they, they do for their products. Salesforce and every, group has nothing to do with their R&D slash. Yeah, but know, every time I've gone, the few times I've, well, not the few times, when I've gone to Dreamforce and the few times I've been able to hear this type of feedback from other customers and even ask the same question of, hey, are you ever going to share your agile process with us? They always say, yes, we're going to publish it. We're going to, we're going to share that. I have yet to see it and maybe it's out there in the back corners of the internet somewhere, but I've never seen them tout their agile process and of what they do internally to build things. Yeah, I haven't either. I mean, you know, they may participate in some like Bay area uh, meetups and stuff where they talk about it, but nothing that I've seen like on the internet. Yeah. Which I think is a shame. I think it'd be interesting to see. They've had a couple of blog posts where they talked about how the different groups work and their they use some kind of, I think they use like a modified scrum approach. Yeah. Um, Either way, but uh, that is that. Man, you've got a lot of you got a lot of items here. I do. I'm just Where talking today. You're at the bottom. I'm going to get to these things. We get to finish with the best, right? Oh, the best, is, best, save, save the, the best, best for last. last. Is that what we're done? Yeah. Or, so. or or you know that once I'm done, you guys can sign off. You know, yeah, you, exactly. don't, you don't have to keep listening. <laughs> yeah. I'm done talking. I mean, you all come to talk to um, listen to me talk. I'm sure, seventy seventy percent of people are asleep by now anyway. So. Uh, so I, th I thought we'd talk about Dreamforce because we talked about how expensive it was and I recently got an email from Java 1 and I saw the price of attending Java 1 I was like holy crap and was it 1500 yeah I'll tell you the numbers here because what is Dreamforce what was the early bird of Dreamforce I want to say it was like a thousand bucks right 1100, 1100. 1100. Mm -hmm. and so right now it's 1299 I think we've we're out of early bird and we're into early registration or whatever they call it mm -hmm. so we're at 1299 with Dreamforce right now as a cost just to attend the event, not including hotel, travel, food, water, medical expenses, whatever. So Java One, this is their super saver rate. Mm -hmm. they, they, they have a lot of different rates, actually. Super saver rate is $1,450, so $1,450. Yeah. Their early bird is $1,650. Their pre-reg rate, which I don't know what that means. I'm assuming you register right before you attend or something. I don't know. $1,850. And then if you were just really lazy and didn't decide not to register until you get there, that cost you twenty fifty, so two thousand fifty dollars. Yeah. I thought, well, how does that compare with other things? So I thought, well, we got Apple Conference coming up, the developer conference. 
And they used to offer an early bird, but they don't anymore because there's so much demand. WWDC? Yeah. Okay. So there's so much demand. So they basically say, this is what it is. Right. You know, whatever. And it's $15.99. Okay. But good luck getting tickets because they sell out within an hour. Right. Don't they have that? They have a, a lottery now, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And then I thought, okay, well, what else is out there in tech? So I went to TED and their price is $8,500. Um, well, TED is an elitist weird thing anyway. It has <laughs> nothing to do with. And their most recent conference coming up is TED Women 2015. That's going on May 27th. That is $1,250. Why do they still call it TED? Why don't they come up with a woman's name? I don't know. Why are I they guess, discounting the women conference, man? Shouldn't that be eight thousand five hundred too? I guess I think women can't. <laughs> no, it's just it. a smaller know. event. <laughs> it's just a smaller event. <laughs> I'm just joking on it, but yeah, it's just a smaller event. Uh, so, yeah, Java one's always been pretty. I mean, it's like the most expensive Java-related conference. Yeah. But any, any, I mean, that's what is it? A one-week conference, full one, full week. Yeah, most of these are are you know week-long conferences. Um. I also I thought I thought I'd look at check out the uh, Java Posse one because you used to attend that one. And I found out that uh, there is no more Java Posse Roundup. It is now the, the Winter Tech Forum. Yeah, the WTF. Yeah, what? <laughs> I almost said it. <laughs> Anytime someone says WTF, I say it in my head, but I almost said uh, it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> We're a family oriented podcast. That's right. I can't say those words. I can't, I can't say that. Can I say freak? From what the from? <laughs> yeah, it's still that's what the, the W the Java Posse roundup. It's still the same thing. It's yeah. just and it's just they don't really do the podcast anymore, and they also I think there's the the attendees. I can speak from experience because I've been there several times. Are interested in a lot more than just Java, and we end up doing you know little not hackathons, but just kind of hack sessions and different um, like demos and lightning talks free and labor. things that are about free labor not, stuff that are about things that are other than, you know, other programming topics, you know, other languages, data storage, you know, cloud stuff, whatever. That's really not necessarily Java related. So I think it made sense to read. Has you ever do any Salesforce Java stuff while you're up there? Winter tech forums conference is kind of a um, generic name, but I do like the acronym. I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> you think that was on purpose? Uh, I'm sure they realized the double entendre. <laughs> <laughs> what would what would we call a good day conference? Good day, sir. Conference. The GD conference. There you go. <laughs> uh, there you go. That's awesome. So yeah, I mean, Salesforce is expensive, but it could be worse. It could be worse. Uh, so this it, next one, or. Or do you have more? I was just going to say, if, you know, if I'm going to be paying to go to Dreamforce and doing, and I mean, I already do so much stuff that supports Salesforce. I really should just go ahead and buy stock so that I, so that I at least have a good feeling that I'm contributing to something that I actually own a small piece of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that always makes it a little bit better. Like anytime I buy, you know, the next iPhone or whatever, it's like, well, at least I'm, at least I own Apple stock, you know? <laughs> yeah, I really should. I should just buy one share or something because I, I can't afford much of that. <laughs> <laughs> of apple yeah well they did a big split yeah i mean when i started it was like 600 and now it's now it's in the split they're yeah i think they split to 100 they did like a six to one split um yeah i'm basically fighting for pennies though yeah i mean but with salesforce is like if i feel like if i owned their stock i wouldn't um it would uh it'd be a conflict of interest since we talk about we talk about salesforce's financial performance and the future and and uh if i 
Yeah, then if you I have to stock, qualify. Yeah, it's like then I would then I wouldn't be able to then I would I would be biased. That eh, doesn't matter. Yeah, no one you, cares. You, no one cares. Just, <laughs> no no one faults Kramer for that. Benioff was at Kramer's wedding. Did you see that? <laughs> Be surprised. They're obviously best buds. Yeah. <clears throat> they had a good old time parting it up and everything. Yeah, that's unbiased right there. It's ridiculous. Everyone in everyone that he reviews and, and tells you to go out and buy and they're all there. Yeah. They're all having a good time. But yeah, not to detract from him getting married. Congratulations. Oh, Kramer got married? Yeah. Yeah. Who did he marry? I don't know. It is someone, I think, in the publishing industry or something. She's, she's someone. She's some personality somewhere or something. Does something. It's not like... You got to stick to the milieu. The milieu? Yeah. What is that? Just that social class. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can't marry a regular person. The regs. Yeah. The normies. <laughs> the plebes. The normies. <laughs> I call us normies. We're normies. Normas. Uh, anyways, moving on. We'll move on to something that I almost yeah, didn't I mean, want these, to cover. These are all your topics, so you just keep, keep driving us along here, John. Keep us going. I almost didn't want to cover this, but it, 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 it kind of made me mad. Do I need to open this? You gonna, yeah. I mean, you should describe it anyway. But, I'll describe it. Yeah. So it, it was a blog post that came through on Salesforce, and it, it's one of those kind of like top 10 articles or, you know, those lists where you list, list, list off a bunch of numbers and, you know, here's your, it's like a bite of information. You mean link bait? It may be. Yeah. yeah. And so this one, I'll just say it. This one seemed like it was written on a plane somewhere. And if she got paid for this, kudos to you. Because this was, this was borderline just utter BS. Yeah. And so the, art, the article is, want more women in tech? Start with four basics. I thought, okay, let's see what these four basics are. Number one, stop interrupting. Does this mean men stop interrupting women? Or yes, it mean- says the number one complaint overwhelming among women leaders in the tech industry is the darn sick or tired of being interrupted in meetings. I'm sure. Well, you- guess what? We all get <laughs> freaking interrupted. I interrupt you a hundred times a minute. I mean, getting a word in edgewise in a in a typical business meeting is that's just part of business. That's part of you know making sure you get your point across. That's that's just standard business that we all have to deal with. You know, so so to put this out there as as something that needs to be fixed because women just doesn't make sense to me. That's just business. So, and, and to, I mean, to whatever extent that women tend to get interrupted more than men do in meetings, um, you know, that's, I guess, stop, stop interrupting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe we should um, stop interrupting in general, let people talk. But at the same time, if you have something really important to say, you're going to make it known, right? So the interesting thing is in my experience, um, there typically are less women, fewer women in a typical meeting than there are men because really, cause I have the opposite. I find in, in a lot of the products, especially enterprise and even small projects, I'm mostly dealing with women, Men, women managing the project, women making the decisions, you know, business owners. So it's been a while since I've been, since I've had the kind of job or worked in the kind of situation where, where you, where I'm in meetings a lot, but I'm just thinking of a, particular company and and uh, i mean there were there were definitely women but i would say it was like maybe 30 40 percent women in in a, in a typical meeting which qualifies under the women's surge program by the way gotta be 30 percent. but the women were the only ones who people would shut up and listen to if you're yeah. a, if you're a, a you know a, a guy talking in there i mean you were highly likely to get interrupted or just shut down or criticized but one of the women you know speaks up and says something it's like everyone just Everyone listens. 
And I was like, I agree. How does, this, how does this work? I know that that was that's my experience as well. I mean, I, it's weird because women, I in some of these scenarios seem to get some deference, um, which I don't think is bad at all. I, I mean, I'm not complaining. I think it's, um, I mean, people should listen to people in general. Um, if yeah. something has, if someone has something to say, they're they're there for a reason. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, her implication here is that women, yeah, get interrupted a lot more than men do. It seems to paint women as these timid little people that sit in the corner and you 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 know they, let them they, let they, them speak right, let, the chi- let the child speak. Themselves, right? You know, it's yeah. it's almost kind of has the it's not empowering to me. You yeah. know, there's no there's nothing empowering about that. It's like, hey, you're picking on this little person. Stop well, it. And how much does it help the um, this kind of women in tech movement or women in business movement in general? If um, if you have all these people saying, you know, stop interrupting us, stop interrupting us, is that? Is that how the the this you know this new kind of neo women's movement wants to be known as? As they, if you're being interrupted, then yeah, say stop interrupting me and let me finish. I mean, those are things you have to do if if you're in that type of situation. That's true. You know, you can't just expect someone else to stop and let you speak. Sometimes, right. especially if you feel passionately about something, a decision being made. I think my point is, I, I think some people might perceive this as being uh, whiny. This this particular type of complaining about, uh, I don't know, women in meetings. Do you not see that? I do, but I want to move on. Okay. So the next one is stop stealing ideas and acting like they are your own. And I'm sorry, we all have to deal with that. Yeah. There's always that kiss butt in the meeting or in the office that takes credit for everything you do. There's always that manager above you that takes credit for everything that you do. I mean, this is business. This is part of you making yourself stand out and and known, and you got to find a way to do it. So I was just reminded of um, the way I felt about some of these. I've read a few of these Salesforce blog, you know, uh, uh, posts about women in business and or women in technology. And this one reminds me of this. All the other ones I've read, which are and they're, they're all they've all been. You know, well written. I mean, fairly well written, and and had good messages, but they have nothing to do with women. Yeah, this what, is, what this does this have to do with women? This has nothing to do with women. And some of the stuff I've read before, like they they um, Salesforce blog. This was several months back, but they had this this post, and it was about all these things to do to like kind of you got to build your brand in right. in your business or whatever. And I read through it, and I'm like, oh, this this is great. This is all good advice. Wait a minute, what does this have to do with women? Right. I. It all just seems. I don't see why this has to be a, a gender thing. All right. Well, the next one, stop valuing FaceTime over real work. And again, that's another one of those things. I and mean, that, this one sucks. This one, try, you have to read this one to kind of understand because that heading's kind of misleading. What she's really trying to say is, you know, your boss is, is valuing seeing your face, you know, after hours, you know, seeing that you're there 24-7, you know, over the amount of, or quality of work that you're doing. But again, that's that's not a woman specific issue. That's a that's a general issue that we all have to deal with. I, I've put in my hours. I've put in my dues, you know, to try and show my worth and put in quality work. And sometimes that does take time and and being there after hours. And there are people who just sit there after hours just to show they're there. That's true. And well, do that's, nothing. That's and that's again. I think that's why I agree with this one. Like that, you know, the kind of warm butts and seats, or or just that, you know, I'll someone that's always trying to be around their, you know, getting. Trying to get you know tons of FaceTime with their boss just to kiss ass, just to right. always be this you know this this little yes. They're packed man. up and ready to go, just All waiting right. for the boss to walk up exactly. the door. You know, 
The next one, I, I don't know how I feel about this one. Stop hiring people you like you and rewarding referrals of more of the same. That doesn't make sense to me because isn't the point if you're if you're a good person, a good employee, you have a great work ethic. Wouldn't the company want more of the same? Wouldn't they think that the people you know have has those similar traits? Not isn't it better to go with a known someone that someone knows to work with? I mean, I understand it. It's kind of leading up to that kind of boys club thing where they just hire their friends and and. You know, they're excluding others. But. That's her argument here. I mean, the first thing she says is, you know, part of the reason why there are so many men in the tech industry is that we all prefer to work with people who are a lot like us. I don't know. I guess I just kind of disagree with that. Yeah. I I see plenty of startups that are filled with women. You know, there might be more men than women, but they're there. You know, I don't, I don't see that. And even on big enterprise, they have quotas to meet. They have, <laughs> they have all these initiatives internally to make sure that they have that 30% at that meeting. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to find the right people anyway. Yeah. You can't, you really can't afford to exclude anyone. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and maybe yeah. some of this is old school thinking. I mean, she's, so let's talk about her bio a little bit. This Adult, was written. You better not even start with any ageism here, John. No, I didn't mean ageism. Okay, I'm just warning you. Trying to keep you out of trouble here. Uh, I apologize for for anything I may say that's incorrect <laughs> or wrong. So she actually goes into her background a little bit. She says, "I spent ten plus years working in the technology industry in marketing, product development, and business development." So I got to think she's she knows the industry. I got to think she's probably run into some of these issues herself. And she she now is a I don't know what to call her motivational speaker or consultant that deals with this t- specific type of issue, aka unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> but she gets paid to go around and give talks and talk about how to empower your women in your organization, I guess. Yeah. So for that reason alone, it kind of pissed me off once I went and read her background and her bio, because I was like, these four topics have nothing to do with women only. These are just general issues in business that we all have to learn to deal with or work around or improve. So I, it did nothing for me in terms of showing that, yeah, this is, this is the right path or this is a path to get to where we need to be. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I, I think it's, again, a lot of this is not the only one I really, I think I didn't quite agree with this at number four. I, I just don't think, I don't think you, most companies, especially if you're talking about like Silicon Valley type companies, I mean, they're, I don't think they're really doing that. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm totally generalizing. I'm sure there are people that do that. It's just a bad business practice because you are not going to be able to compete if you do that. Right. But the other items were just, were good advice. They just have nothing to do with, you know, what's in your pants. It just nothing yeah. at all. I don't, um, I mean, if it just, if it just had some general, if the, if the, if the art title of the article was different, if it was just something, you know, these are the four basics of things that you need to stop doing so that your employees can succeed. You know, maybe that maybe we wouldn't be, we wouldn't even be talking about this article. How do you like the stock photography? The top. Oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> I know that's because you know that's what I'm gonna, the worst part of the. You know what I'm going to bring up? I'm going to have to bring up Dreamforce. Okay. And I might be the only one offended by this, and, and maybe I'm being offended for other people for no reason. I'm sure you can find some like-minded people who are offended by whatever you're about to say. But why is it 90 percent of Dreamforce's advertising has women in the pictures and women looking up? They're all looking up the stage with these big smiles as if they're looking at their Messiah. Oh, oh have you been to Dreamforce, John? I'm just, no. <laughs> Why? If they're, tr- if they're trying to show that Dreamforce is a place for women, Dreamforce is a place for, for everyone to come together and learn, and we're all colleagues and we're equals. Why is all their advertising of, of pictures looking, of women looking up? There's th- Why? 
That's a good question. I haven't noticed that, but maybe that's because I'm I'm part of the uh, go around and the, look. Next time you see a Dreamforce advertisement that's got a bunch of women, they're all looking up. Now they're all looking up because these pictures are taken at a Dreamforce event, and the stage is higher, well, and okay. we're all sitting. Right. But from a psychology perspective, I look at this and I see all these advertising of Dreamforce. Hey, let's all go to Dreamforce. Everyone has a great time. They're all looking up. I think. I mean, I, aren't the men looking up too? Don't you have to look up to see what's on the stage? I actually, I haven't really noticed many pictures with the guys in it. The few I have, they were all looking straight on. Well, why are you? But if it was just women, they were all looking up. Why are you so focused on looking at women? Because I'm part of this, <laughs> this women's search. I want to see more women in tech. Okay. Yeah. Nice save. The sausage fest in here. Nice man. save. <laughs> no, but it's, it's all, it's all front. It's all front of mind. It's all things that, that we're getting bombarded with. Yeah. You know, there's a lot, there's a bunch recently in this last week or so, I don't have them all taught, you know, linked up and everything, but there's, there's been a few lawsuits going on right now of, you know, from gender discrimination. Well, yeah. So there's the famous one out there is the Kleiner Perkins mm-hmm. one, right? And didn't she lost that? She, so some woman who worked there sued. And but I think there was another one that came out this week as well. Could be. Yeah. I mean, I'd really... I mean, I, I definitely, I mean, I'm, I'm very like, I think women, I think, I mean, we, we need more women in technology. I think, um, I don't know how many, I don't know what the ideal percentage is, but I, you know, I think this generation of parents is doing a much better job in exposing women to, and, and the boys and the girls to broader things that aren't so gender stereotyped, um, and it's only it's only after that comes to fruition that we're going to see, you know, more women in technology, more women in more leadership roles in business. I mean, it's not. I'm not saying it's. We have to wait until that. That's not my point. But yeah, but I think really solving this starts at that point, and it's going to take a while for that to completely flush through the system. Um, but the some of these tactics I see by the like women in tech movement, I don't think are productive. And that's what frustrates me most about that whole movement is I, I support the movement. I support the idea. Um, and I think that there's a lot that can be done to, for the women who do want to get involved to make it a welcoming and safe thing for them to do. But I just, a lot of the strategies I see, I'm like, I just don't think that's helping. Yeah, and, you know, more gender exclusive things don't help. More, you know, I don't. That's just that's just an example, but um, I just see a lot of things. I'm just like, wow, that's that's not really helping. That's not moving the needle. Um, but also, we're we're a couple of guys. I, yeah, that's that, yeah, <laughs> talking exactly. about women, what to do right. to solve a problem for women. And all, all I can just <laughs> is honestly speak from my perspective. I mean, that's all I can do is is. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of um, the Big Bang episode i don't know if you saw that but there, there was an episode where they were trying to do something to get more women into science and so the the three of them you have leonard raj and i think it was raj or howard one of them was out there was only three of them i think and sheldon and so they all went to this school and they they had all you know all the the girls in like this i want to say sixth grade class or something and they attempted to try and get them excited about getting into the field of science and they failed miserably at it and so they were looking for a way to, to kind of fix things. And so Sheldon says, I know what to do. And he pulls out a phone and he calls their three friends who are in science. You know, uh, why do I not know the characters' names? You have the, the neuroscience, Sheldon's girlfriend, and Howard's wife or whatever. Okay. Whatever their names are. I should know this, but I don't. 
doesn't matter. And so they, he, he put them on the phone to kind of talk to them about science. So I don't know, maybe, maybe we have too many dudes trying to solve a problem that maybe women should solve, but I mean, there's a lot of women that are working on it and maybe, I, maybe I should call the, the author of this article and, and ask her to come on the show and see if she'll give us our, her perspective mm. where we where we're wrong <laughs> in our thinking. I'm yeah. I'm, I don't, I don't, I mean, I really don't have strong opinions about it. I mean, I just notice general things and you know, some things seem to make sense and some things seem to not make sense. and be completely wrong on both but anyway all right well you've left me about three minutes to plow through my no i did not yes you we, we're at the 50 minute mark here oh my god i'm sorry dude <laughs> you can cut like all half right. of my stuff out no, i'm not cutting anything we didn't we're we're live to tape whatever that means um so what are we on now so you're not going to cut anything out okay so okay so there's a guy um, i wanted to talk about this so let me ask you something it is about triggers you're a uh you're a seasoned Salesforce developer. You've been doing triggers since they were a thing. Um, let's say you have a trigger where you want to validate values of you know that are on a record that's being created. Where do okay. you where do you put those records? Do you put them or those that validation? Do you you put it in the uh, like before before update? You know before insert before update trigger. And that's well, kind of a, well, it, it depends this. on what type of validation, because if it's a validation that can be handled by declarative, that's where it goes first. If it's something that requires, you know, some looking up and querying. Uh, I totally disagree. With that's where it goes first. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Why is that? Uh, the whole clicks, not code is completely misguided. There are, you know, some the, the idea that you should always click if you can is not good advice because that's not true. I think it's good advice. I. It's going to be easier to change your business rule logic, whether or not something's required or not, whether whether a certain calculation is valid or not. Okay, at so there's, the, things, at that level, there's things you can do in workflow and validation that because you're working in that particular, um, like, what is that language called? Their formula language, right? Is v- incredibly unreadable and super difficult to maintain. That and that's a situation where hmm, probably better do it in Apex. You can make you can make you could write very clean code. True, and that's that's a, that's a valid reason to make something code versus yep. point and click. Right. But I'm I think just, so. I think if it can be accomplished by point and click easily, do it there because you have a lot more flexibility in in so modifying that. Another another reason is is it, it tends to promote people going in and changing the system on the fly without thinking through well, tests or even that's running your tests. real issue right there that, no, it, if, we, if we get to that's it a big issue that's yeah. well that's another one because there's none of the tests are run when right. you do that right so you could have just broken a bunch of stuff right and some poor developer is going to find it next time he tries to deploy it to your production org right right um what was the what was the other one I had another idea on why you shouldn't you it's not necessarily clicks over code um so there was the bad the bad language that you're writing in um, I don't know. I mean, the whole thing. Also, you know, you're completely operating outside of version control, so you're losing history. You know, can't roll back to a working state if you need to, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's so many. There, I was, I had another third really good one in my head, but it's gone because uh, that's the way my brain works. Um, but anyway, so okay, so let's go back to what I was asking. So you have a val, you have a, some validation you want to do on a, on a, on a and let's say that you, for whatever reason, you've decided you're doing this in a trigger. That mm-hmm. was not my, don't want to go down that rattle again. Um, you would think that like the before insert before update would be a good place to put it because you know it's before anything's been transactions been committed, no nothing's been written to the database, so catch it then, right? It's earlier, right. it's cheaper, right? In terms of time and and whatever. 
Um, you agree with that? I agree that before isn't the right place for it. Isn't the right place. Is not. Okay. Right. So where's the right place? It's got to be in the after. Now, why is that? Why does it have to be in the after? Uh, mainly because it's the end of the chain. So you have things modifying records during that process. Even you have the before, you have things like workflow doing field updates. We, have, and we now have process builder doing updates. We have all those things potentially modifying your information. So if you do it in the before, there's a chance you're going to think everything's okay. A workflow puts it in a bad state. That's a good point. So, so not only might you have some kind of workflow update or a process builder that runs after your trigger. I'm not, I don't know off the top of my head. What, I don't know what the order is, but let's say that's possible. Right. Um, you could also have other triggers run after. And you might say to yourself, well, um, you know, I control the entire code base. So I'll just have one trigger that, mm-hmm. and I'll have some, you know, trigger handling class of some sort that, that orders all these things correctly. And I'll put the validation at the end. Well, what happens when you install some package that, right? So you yeah. really don't ever have control over your code base. <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting here nodding my head because I know right. exactly where you're going. And with I, that. You know, I'm, I'm leading the witness here. And, and of course, I know the answer to this. I'm just make, trying, to, trying, to, trying to get some points out You know out all there. the answers, Jeremy. That's right. We know this. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so once, once you're in the, the after phase, I mean, I guess, I guess you, you are committed. Are, well, you're I, not. You're, see, and that, that, my whole reason... When I originally started doing this, befores was my thing, because if you do it in the after, I'm thinking, okay, there's been a commit to the database, which means it has to do a delete, but that's not the case. Well, it doesn't mean it's been written to disk or anything, that's right. for sure, right? It's kind of a virtual commitment. It's, it has an ID. It has all these things provisioned for it to become a record, but it's not technically a record until all of that completes. So yeah. it's not, you can still error, and it rolls all that back, mm-hmm. and your user gets, gets the response. But there's no delete command, which was my issue with doing it in the after when I first started before I understood that was, well, if I do it in the after, then I have to roll back and then it has to do a delete of this and all this kind of stuff. And it's going to affect performance, but that's not the case. Well, it could affect performance some. I mean, if you, if you don't validate until you get to the after, that means a lot of stuff happened that you could have probably intercepted and stopped. But I don't think that performance should be the tail that wags the dog all the time. It's not all about, it's not just about performance. Right. I mean, correct data is more important than speed. True. Um, but yeah, so the, I think the most important thing about the after phase though, is that nothing can change in the after phase. You can have things, you can have all kinds of n- number of things that are happening in the after phase, but, n- but one thing they, none of them can do is change the record at that point. They can do a, they could do a DML statement or some thing that started a whole new set of phases, Right. But that's in a separate, that's in a, that's going to be in a kind of a nested transaction at that point where you get a whole new set of befores and afters. True. But nothing, you know, you can't, you can't modify anything. In, in it's the still after, within the, the same after. transaction. So you still have to worry about limits. It's, it's not a good idea to update the same record that you're triggering off of. No. And you, I'm not saying you, sh- I mean, yeah, that's always a tricky thing doing DML and, and after. I mean, but, you do get, you do get a new chain of before and afters that, that part's correct, but it's still within the same transaction. Within five, I think five's the limit that it'll loop basically before it cuts out. Yeah. So any kind of workflows you have that updates something that might cause it, everything to rerun again. And then, you know, it'll do that up to five times. Right. And in fact, I think technically speaking, if you, if we're talking about like database transactions, I think it's all actually one transaction. I don't think, I don't think the transaction technically gets committed until all those things finish. If you, if you have, if you have a trigger that spawns more triggers, that spawns more triggers up to what'd you say? Five is the depth yeah. limit or whatever. That's still all in the 
that's all in the same. I, yeah, it's a single database transaction, transaction but it's, right? it's, there's a hierarchy of nested transactions that occur. But in the, in this, in this trigger model that Salesforce developed, they don't, you know, they, in, they enforce the rule that you can't change anything in the, in the after phase. So that's the safest place. And I got the, the, what I, I uh, so this guy, Andy Fawcett, or Andrew Fawcett, who works at, um, what's the financial financial force. I think he's like their CTO or something, but, uh, he's also the one that wrote apex, uh, enterprise patterns. I think anyway, he, he had a blog post the other day. It was, uh, just talking about this and I thought it would be a good thing to discuss. You have any, uh, further enlightenment or, uh, no, are facts? we moving on from the trigger from the trigger thing? Is that what we're doing? I'm just asking if, yeah, if you have anything else to add to that, if there's any, uh, any John de Santiago words of, of wisdom that you've collected over your, uh, vast years of experience as a Salesforce developer. We could be here all day, man. <laughs> it doesn't triggers mm. or in just validation in general. Yeah, just valid. Yeah, I guess. Where, I mean, just where to, where to put your validation code when it comes to triggers? Well, I definitely, it's got to be in the after. That's only, that's only where possible. You want to, you want to, you want to have a single method and control the order that those are executed because you could put yourself into a similar state as the entire system is of validating something before something else has a chance to validate. It might be correct. I didn't follow that, but. What'd you say about having, putting things in a certain order? You said something about that. For validation? Yeah. So if you're in the after though, the order doesn't matter because nothing can change anything. So it doesn't matter what order these, you know, your after triggers run in. Well, having everything in the same place that's doing validation, if it, you can, you can put it in an order, like you can have like three different validation methods, but they're all called by a single method that says validate this record. Mm -hmm. And those three validations need to happen in a certain order. Why is that? Um, because you might have an exception that says this record requires this field, but only if X, Y, Z is true. Okay. But maybe you have a different validation that says if X, Y, Z is this, then don't run this. So you have to make sure you control the order of when those happen. Mm, see, I try to make all validations independent of each other. It, too much coupling between validations. I don't think validations should know about other validations. And I'm not saying you are saying that necessarily, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because that gets, that just kind of turns into spaghetti code. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a, of a use case where I've had this situation before where I thought controlling the order was very important in terms of how it validated. Um, but now, now thinking about it, I'm thinking that might not be the case because it should fall through and oh, it should yeah. error at some point well, correctly. Maybe what you're thinking of, if you, depending on what order you have your validations in, um, if, if, for example, if you have a model where when it, as soon as a, a validation fails, it throws an exception and stops, you may have certain validations that you want to have a higher precedent than precedence than other validations. And so you'd want, there's, there's, a, there's an error message that's more important than another yeah, one, right? That, that might that might have been it. But I think now I kind of, I've switched to a model where I collect all the validation errors rather than fail on just one. Yeah. Um, because I, maybe that's what it was when I first started doing this, as soon as I hit a validation error, I throw the error. Now I make sure that I have that single validation method and they all contribute to the same error log or array. Yeah. And so as they're validating, the user gets feedback on all of the validation fails versus just the one. Also, another thing I was thinking in the before update, if you have a validation that fails, what is your option? Can you do add error or do you on the, on the S object or do you have to throw an exception? No, you can do add error. You can, you can okay. still do add error. 
Uh, I have some bad news. Oh no. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Salesforce's prices are going to be going up. What? Yeah. <laughs> Say what? We got to get to 10 billion, man. How, how are we going to get to 10 billion if we, uh, we don't raise prices? Ugh. It is absolutely my dream and I'm dedicated to being the fastest to 10 billion. So Forrester, um, I guess released, um, an, an analysis of Salesforce, which is actually seemed to be a fairly, um, fairly in-depth analysis. And it was, it's basically just talking about, you know, Salesforce over the next few years and, you know, how they, how they're going to meet their goals, how they're going to continue to be a, or, or become a leader in this, in this space of very large software vendors, I guess. So it's weird. Like to, you, to these companies that used to be software vendors and now they're like cloud technology companies. It's like everything's morphed, but. Um, so here's, here's his opening thing. So Salesforce needs to start thinking about returning profits to its shareholders, which will likely mean pressure on customers to spend more time with the cloud CRM company, a higher prices and less innovative products. Uh, an analyst at Forrester have warned. Um, so like, you know, you know, so Salesforce has got to compete with, so they're trying to move up this chain, right? They want to be, do they, they said they want to be the largest software company. Hasn't he said that? Doesn't he say that? He must be bigger than SAP, right? He, or wants, he wants to rule the What's world. What's the biggest man? one we decided? IBM? Don't they have like ninety yeah. billion dollars or something like that? But so they've got to compete with you know IBM, Microsoft, Oracle, and SAP, and they've all got um you know CRM type products and all these different things. But they've also got platform things. So platform, you know, they've got platform as a service. They've got all this cloud stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Platform as a service, uh, infrastructure as a service. I guess. I mean, Salesforce doesn't really do infrastructure service, but definitely platforms of service with force.com and with Heroku. Right. But they got to get to $10 billion and selling. You can't sell enough sales cloud and service cloud to get to $10 billion. That's the, that's the problem. I mean, they've kind of at some point, and I've, we've talked about this. I think they're, they're kind they of doing analytics. Are they 40, are, 40, has, 40 grand, man? <laughs> a month. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Salesforce at some point is hitting saturation, right? I mean, Everyone, I mean, my neighbors, my doctor, everyone knows Salesforce. Everyone knows who Salesforce is. I mean, five years ago when I told people what I did, that, or that if I told them I worked with Salesforce, I'd have to explain what that was. And now it's like everyone, everyone knows what it is. You know, or they've they heard of it or they know their company say. has it, you know. They have a, oh, I have a login to that, but I don't use it, you know. Or, you know, it's something. <laughs> you, everyone's heard of it. Um, so they've kind of hit saturation, I think, with, um, of course, they'd probably argue, but I mean, it's some, their market share can only get so big. With with sales sales cloud and service cloud, and so what do the, what do you do then? Do you start raising prices on sales cloud and service cloud? You, you got to get to ten billion, right? Or do you add more products? Well, I think that's what they're doing, right? They're, you know, they're going to grow by acquisition, right? They, I mean, Salesforce has one hundred fifty thousand customers, right? They've got to get those customers to buy more crap. You know, if you're on sales cloud right now, service cloud, that's great. But we're going to need you to buy this analytics thing and this partner portal thing and this, you know, stock your customers on or stock people on social marketing thing, whatever, right? We need you to buy all these things. Uh, and so that's, that's what, that's kind of the point of this is that's, that's how they're, they've got to get to this, you know, this 10 billion mark. Cause that's what this article is saying then, that they, they, this is what they need I think to so. do. Yeah. I mean, that's the, I'm just kind of reading my own notes here or that's kind of my own thoughts, but yeah. It, doesn't that open up the potential for backlash from, from from the customers and everyone that, that, Hey, we're getting nickel and dime here, which I talked about last week. Is, is there some complaining about that, that the, the pricing model, everything's really expensive already. 
and now you're going to up the prices and you're going to do the hard sell on support and service and analytics and everything else. Well, Salesforce is definitely hard sales driven, right? Everybody knows that. I mean, their AEs are relentless to the point of being annoying, off-putting, some of them. So, yeah, I mean, and then nickel and dime, I mean, if they're delivering value, then people are willing to, I think most people are willing to pay for value. True. Right. But if they're just getting strong armed into buying something that they really don't need. Yeah. Like, for example, if someone's already got, you know, business objects or Tableau and and their Salesforce AEs just hammering them on wave, like you got to get wave. It's better. It's more integrated with Salesforce and all this kind of stuff. And if they, you know, if they ended up, if they end up you know, buying it and then they end up not using it. Well, that's not good because now you have a customer that knows they're not getting the value that they're paying for. Right. They just got kind of forced into it. And this, and this is the problem. This is a problem where you, when you have so much of your business process and your, your business is almost like identity locked up in some other vendors, proprietary system, where are you going to go? You basically, once you get into this, it's a it's the Roach Motel, right? Of software, you get into this thing, you can't get out, right? It's it's proprietary. You've built all this stuff, all this code and these things, and your customer portal, and right, and this is perfect. This is what Salesforce wants. It's great. And that's what everyone wants, though. Sure, it's the holy grail. Well, it, it happens. It happens just by nature, though. Even if even if you pick a bunch of different vendors to service all your different needs, you have a different CR, tool for CRM, different for analytics and everything else, you've somehow built some infrastructure. You've put the glue in place to keep those systems together and to actually work together. Saying that you know next week we're going to go and switch off to something else is not easy, and it's going to be just as painful as it would be to have it all in Salesforce. I guess. I mean, I think Salesforce has done a really good job of creating all this these proprietary hooks that you, that you hook into, right? And then, and then you're stuck. But anyway, so, uh, so here's a quote from a, a Forrester analyst. He says, what is good for Salesforce's investors is not necessarily good for its clients. Um, Salesforce is bidding to be your strategic customer platform. Should you accept? And that's, that's the question, you know? I mean, because obviously Salesforce offers a lot of value. I mean, that's why they've done so well because, you know, you get a lot out of it. Um, but uh, yeah, in order to get to 10 billion, it's going to be hard for Salesforce to maintain. Well, we've talked about this. How do you become, they're already, I mean, what, are the, what were they last year? Four and a half billion. And they're, we're already, of course, they're going to be they're on their path to six. I'm sure they'll probably hit 6 billion this year, but they're already having a problem, you know, integrating their different products. And it's like maintaining, maintaining a coherent, a coherence, right? Across an architectural integrity. Or, I don't even know if that's the right word, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. Across these different things. It's getting so big that that, that becomes a problem. Um, there's another thing he says in planning their Salesforce relationship, CIOs must approach the vendor, which is Salesforce as a potential strategic provider rather than a vendor of point solutions. Never surrender leverage in the relationship without massive compensation in return for doing so. And I kind of interpret that to mean that, you know, never just say, okay, fine, Salesforce, we'll, we'll buy into this this thing that you have, right? Cause it is a roach motel. When you, once you buy in and you go whole hog, there's no turning around really. You're in, right? So you shouldn't give that up. That's your, that's your plan. That's your, that's your, what your hand, right? Your, uh, what's the word? That's your, and that's your leverage. So if you're going to do it, then you need, you better get something big out of it. Right. Like some kind of promises about 
future technology access or long-term discounts, or I don't know, I don't know what they're talking about, but that's kind of how I interpreted that. I mean, in other words, basically don't become Salesforce's bitch without getting something back for it. I mean, they'll have you by the balls and there's that point, there's no way to escape. There is a way to escape. You can't get your data out and you can't move it to another system. Well, data is not data is just data. That's not your, Ooh, oops. I just spilled some stuff here. I mean, data is not, um, uh, that's, that's one thing, right? But I mean, what, what about all your, your code and your processes and, and your code? <laughs> Have I said that yet? <laughs> like that's, what are you going to do with that? I mean, you can't, um, you know, your identity management and your, uh, you know, your authentication. I mean, it's all, it's all Salesforce wants to own all of that, the whole thing, the whole ball of wax. Yeah. Um, so Forrester predicts that 2017 will be the crunch year for Salesforce because it's, because it's revenue growth rate has, and is showing a decreasing trend from 30% like last year or whatever, right down to 20, 21% is what they're predicting for 2017. Uh, it says the it says uh, the revenue growth rate will probably slow even more after 2017. At which point, shareholders will start to put pressure on Salesforce to stop spending whatever it wants to attract and retain customers, and make tough decisions on where to raise prices and cut costs and services. And this is the thing we've talked about also before: is like you know once you once you once you sign up with Salesforce, what happens if um what happens if they decide to raise prices? Right. I mean, you probably are only on an annual contract with Salesforce anyway, so that when your contract's up right, and Salesforce is really hitting this crunch time that we've, that we've talked about before. Now this Forrester is starting to write about this. Um, maybe Salesforce starts to become not near as attractive as a platform, but again, at that point, what are you going to do? Um, I don't think the, the issue is the platform itself. I mean, so much as their goals aligning with, you know, the goals of their customers, you know, customers are moving to these platforms and these clouds to kind of reduce their costs, to reduce their maintenance, to reduce their overhead. Well, what is, what is Mark Benioff's goal though? Well, Mark Benioff's goal is to it 10 is billion. It is absolutely my dream and I'm dedicated <laughs> to being the fastest to 10 billion. Right. That's, not, that's cost, not necessarily but, Salesforce's customers goal. Most, most, I think a lot of Salesforce customers don't care what sales, if Salesforce goes from 6 billion to 10 billion. Right. Right. They're just looking for this platform that they are looking for a good tool that helps them reduce costs, helps them gain efficiencies, helps them do things. They're not looking to spend more money. Right. So I, I also I don't know where I read this, but this is this is a serious suggestion that that Salesforce would be able to make up for this like this gap. Right. To be able to, again, like achieve leverage and start to uh, get get revenue and maybe some profitability simply from like. uh basically moving people into like the force.com, like the app exchange model. I mean, do you think the app exchange and I have no idea, does Salesforce moving release customers to the app exchange model? No, like, like acquiring solutions and then putting them on, on app exchange. Like, I mean, growth through acquisition is probably their best chance right now. As they reach saturation, their best chance is going to be to buy another exact target and, and gain that customer base. I think I think the suggestion was that like they they do almost like how you know Apple makes now pretty decent money from just their their hold back on uh, or their commission or whatever on app sales. I mean that's billions, right? That's billions a year. Um, that Salesforce could do the same. And I just don't know that I see that. I mean, there's 
And again, I, I don't think I have to go back and look, but, but they, uh, they do charge a fee. I mean, they don't get like a 30% cut of every download or anything, but they, they do charge a fee for certification and all that kind of stuff. Well, I know they charge a listing fee, right? It's like right. five grand or something, two grand. I don't know. Five grand. Um, but they don't for licensing. They don't take a cut. Maybe they should. Are you sure they don't? What would that do to the market though? I don't think they do, but who knows? I'm I'm usually the one helping them set up, not the one maintaining the, the it'd be, relationship. It'd be crazy for Salesforce to leave that money on the table, wouldn't it? Or to not have created a I think, model. I think at the time they wanted to make sure everyone came in and started doing stuff. And yeah. you know, one way to do that is say, hey, here's a certification fee, but everything else is your your money. Yeah. So a that, lot of companies that have found success on the app store have since moved off of it. Mainly because they don't need that. They don't need the app store anymore. They don't need the exposure of the app store anymore. They have a good solid customer base. They have word of mouth. You're talking about Apple? Yes. I'm talking about software companies that developed for Apple that, you know, use the app store, you know, and you purchased from the app store. Right. Have since moved off of the app store and started deploying directly again um, so that they don't have to give up that 30%. The only examples I've seen of people successfully moving off were the ones that didn't move off because they thought they were going to save some money, but because that they found out was the requirements to be on the app store. The what's it called? This, the kind of the jail, the sandbox or whatever right. just did not work for their app. Well, there's that. There's also the fact that, um, but can you, you can't rapidly release everything has to be approved. So if right. somehow you release with a bug, you can't rapidly fix that. You right. basically have to tell stop downloading this guys. It's and broken. That's, that's really, that's a bummer, man. You know, it's, so it's, there's issues with that. And then, and then of course, it, you know, a 30% cut does hurt. Especially when you're competing with other apps that are like 99 cents. It hurts, but think you're, of, you're trying to be a premium app that costs 50 bucks. Think of, a t- think of the exposure though that you, I mean, there's so many companies that, yeah, they're paying 30% back to Apple, but that 70% they keep is so much more than they would ever have been able to generate if they were on their own. And that's true. And that's what I'm saying that these companies did start out there, but then they outgrew it, the need for that. And have moved off because of that. Yeah. Because they don't, they don't need to do that anymore. I just wonder if that model translates to, you know, enterprise software like this i mean i think there's other things to point out like google and i'm not super familiar with it but you know go, the google apps marketplace there was there's some uh there's some some winners there that um that have had a made a pretty good business out of just selling their a completely you know google app type of um you know integrated app right mm-hmm. and selling it all through that marketplace so i guess maybe i just i just don't see that as a realistic way for salesforce to to put them over the over that edge of I don't know. That seemed weird when I read that kind of suggestion. But um, anyway, so this says that basically the Salesforce's prices aren't going to change like in the next year or two, but they're going to become more aggressive with sales tactics. And also, I think this doesn't mention this, but they're going to get more aggressive on contract uh, length. Oh, I'm sure. Um, But yeah, and and, and to try to get customers to adopt more of more products and and then effectively, this is what he says, effectively lock them into an enterprise-wide Salesforce platform. It would almost be like your car salesman. They don't ask you, they don't tell you how much you, you want to pay for the car. They ask you how much you want your monthly payments to be. Yeah. You know, and there right. may be a balloon payment at the end or something along those lines. I'm not saying salesman do a balloon payment, but I'm saying they're going to change their line of questioning. It's not going to be, you know, you, here's your user account. Here's what you're going to pay annually. No, it's going to be how much you want to pay a month. Yeah. And we can do that amount if you do a 10 year contract with these services, because then the margins balance out. Right. Or they'll backload, like give you, well, we'll give you a, a backloaded contract. It's, it'll be cheaper up front. But by the time you've moved off to another employer, the price, right? <laughs> right. The, the price will start going up. 
Uh, okay, so as the pressure hits, uh, Forrester warns uh, customers to expect Salesforce to offer more enterprise licenses with relatively fixed and inclusive prices that do not cover new products that the company builds or acquires. Um, expect the quality of Salesforce's products to stumble as it expands its product portfolio. And that's something I haven't seen this yet necessarily. I mean, there's been, I feel like Salesforce's quality has been, if, you look, if I could graph it out over time, it's been fairly static. I mean, there's always been quality issues. They've always had issues with, um, with subtle but sometimes critical bugs in Apex that, that pop up, you know, mainly around release time, but sometimes, you know, off-cycle mm-hmm. bugs. Um, it hasn't been catastrophic. I've never seen a week-long outage or anything like that. I don't think it's talking about outage. It's just, it's running, and you know, it's just bugs, bugs or issues. I mean, there's ton. There really are tons that Salesforce uh, just is not getting. I mean, there's there's some that they absolutely have to fix, and it depends on the size of the customer complaining about it. That's how they prioritize a lot of these. But there's so many really important ones that just they just go unfixed. It's just not high enough priority. Doesn't get prioritized. And as and we talked about this, as Salesforce spreads their resources more thin, and they only we know they only spend twenty percent of their revenue on R and D. So that that twenty percent's got to cover everything, all the clouds. We're up to seven well, now. That's probably what's, what we're going to see. We're going to see more clouds. We'll see less, well, and less feature enablement and more clouds. Well, look at people complained. Remember, and those clouds are, are going to be dividers. They're going to be lines in the sand that say, this is this product, this is that product, and this is what you're paying for. Yeah. But do you remember in people complaining that when, I guess when iOS was under development, that Apple took a lot of resources from like OS 10 mm-hmm. and moved them over to Apple and people were, you know, that people that knew about this were complaining saying, Hey, you know, obviously you've taken a lot of your OS 10 people but and move them to, and I don't know if that's a good analogy because that's Apple, a single company building a new product internally. And I don't, I don't think Salesforce is going to be doing that. I think they're mainly going to be acquiring these, these people, these, these customer bases through acquisitions, and they're going to gain some of those resources. It could be, but like, look at wave, for example, they built that. And True. I'm sure people got, I mean, again, they only, their R&D budget is what it is and they have to add products. They cannot start, they can't double the price of the sales and service cloud right now. They've got to add products because they've got to hit, stay on this revenue growth rate. And so how do you add products? Well, you buy, you can buy them, right? They've done a lot of that and you can build them, right? And if, and, but in either case, you know, you've got to have people doing that and those people have to come from somewhere and they, they can only hire so many people because they've only got so much budget for it. And, and so that's anyway, that's what they're saying is that, you know, expect to see some of the, some of the old products things expect to see some quality suffer a little bit. I mean, it's just a theory, but yeah, we'll see. Um, I'm expecting things to get better. I'm expecting some new UI stuff to come out. I'm expecting, you know, some, some window dressing and yeah. And that's, that's obviously a big one, right? I mean, that's, we've talked about what a gigantic effort that's going to be. Yeah. And that's that again, that's a it's an opportunity cost. It's like you can't use you can't spend that same dollar in two different places. Right. You know, if you're gonna put that much effort into this, you know, unifying UI, it's gonna it's gonna come at the cost of something. Um, well, that's what I would like to see. But they're saying based on what they've seen with basically with other companies, um products, older products like sales cloud and service cloud are likely to slip over time from best in class to middle of the pack as competitors catch up. What, uh, while acquired or new products will follow the opposite trajectory. So they're saying things like Wave and, and um, or some of the other new things. I don't know. 
but those are going to really yeah, have lightning. A good, those are going to have, yeah, those gonna have a good trajectory, right? I mean, they're going to have good uptake. They're obviously expensive, right? So they're going to really help revenue and and hopefully, um, you know, bottom line numbers as well. Um, but like sales cloud, and have, we have, this is exactly what we've been talking about. Like Salesforce, and I've been saying this, it's not the best CRM anymore. It's not the best looking. It's not the slickest. It's not the one that's best at task management. It's not the one that's best at, I mean, there's so many, so much better task management. There's so many better things to, to, that allow you to, you know, communicate and with email better. I mean, the, really the value of sales and service cloud right now is just that they, they enter, they're integrated to these other things. And they, and it's, if you want to build, um, on this platform, you can build, you know, basically already integrated in with your CRM system. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's pretty interesting that the analysts are starting to talk about this. It's, well, enjoy it while it lasts because once Dreamforce hits, it's a big party and everyone will be trumpeting the, the success of Salesforce and all their new features that they announce and they're on the right track. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, the model of Salesforce is pretty clear. It's, the, you know, they announce things that are, that you may get to actually use in the next upcoming year in, you know, depends on how long it's in pre-release and beta and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, sales, I mean, I don't, you know, Salesforce is run by a lot of smart people. Um, it's, you know, they're, I don't think they're going to let their bread and butter totally just rot away. You know, it's right. not what I'm saying. I don't think that's any, I don't think anyone's saying that, but they do have limited resources and they're trying to do a lot of stuff. And they're basically, they're, they're put themselves in a situation where they've got to do, they've got to start broadening, right? They can't, um, they're going to go to all their, they're looking at all their all their CRM customers and saying, "Hey, we've got all this all these other things that we need you to look at. We need you to buy these other things. We got to get to ten billion, right? And and this is enterprise software. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're making they're making software that for the for the for the CIO for the buyer for the guy who buys it. And as a result, you're just like this Forrester result." Uh, analyst says on these on these older products you've got these hungry cool startups that are coming in that can build really cool solutions yeah so i mean i don't know how much i don't know how much success they'll have in eating away at salesforce's it's not very often that you hear people leaving salesforce right right but they leave it to do something bigger they they leave it to build something take what they've learned you mean like uh, the build their own CRM or what do you mean? No, they go on to build new. I mean, we've got a lot of people who left Salesforce to do analytics and, you know, business intelligence and all those kind of things. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I was talking more about, you know, Salesforce customers that leave to go to a oh, different okay. CRM. I mean that you don't see that very often. No, no, no. You do see a lot of people leaving Salesforce. We, we, I don't know if we've talked on the podcast very much about the brain drain. I mean, there for a while they were they losing a lot of their top R and D guys to Twitter. Now it's, they're losing a lot of their top, R&D guys to some of the, uh, some of the like big data and analytics type, um, startups yeah. that are still in like, um, secret mode. And but a lot of these startups mode. are funded by Benioff or, or <laughs> some venture that's, that's that he's involved part. in. So I, I, I got to think it's like, Hey, if you can't keep you've them, got this right? great idea, but it's not something that's right for Salesforce. Right. Why don't you go out and do it? I'll help you get started. That's good, right? That's that's a really. And if you if you do really well and take off, I'll buy it off you. Exactly, and that, that's a really smart way. I mean, if I'm Mark Benioff, I'm like, okay, uh, there's a certain number of really smart people here that we're just not going to be able to keep. So if we can't keep them and benefit from them that way, let's invest in wherever they go. Right. That's pretty smart. Yeah. 
if you have the money to do it, right? I think he's got the money. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> well, at least from what I've seen, he's got he's building what? hospitals and hanging out with Chris Rock and everyone else. You know. Oh, okay. You talking about him personally? Yeah, but that's also because well, sales- yeah, because because the, they will be specific. They'll either say it's like the Salesforce venture that that right, which usually is involved, but also you'll see Benioff's name there as an investor as well. So right. he's doing he's investing his own money as yeah. well. Yeah. It'll be interesting to watch a lot of this unfold. I'm about to lose my computer. What's that? My no. battery's oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't plug in. Good thing you're not recording. Yeah. So I th- you know what I think I want to do? So we talked about that um the trigger uh validation thing, and that was uh, Andrew Fawcett. Uh, I want to take, so he's got this book, right? Apex Enterprise Patterns. I, don't, I haven't read the book, but I've read a couple of his posts. He's got a, I think he's got a lot of blog posts about various, you know, enterprise patterns. And I've seen the patterns and yeah. used them actually. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, it's like, you know, he's taken, I, and I, I'm assuming he's taken like this, some of the classic gang of four patterns and, and some newer things and, and saying, okay, how do you apply these in the Salesforce world? Like, yeah. how do you take, and how do you take patterns that were designed for languages like, Gosh, even like C or and Java and Ruby, and how do you apply those to Apex, which doesn't have packages, doesn't it has a very limited like um, object orientation to it, right? Um, you know, and I've kind of avoided that because it's just it's just sad. It's I don't want to. I'm not necessarily, and and I'm sure he's got a lot of good stuff in there. I mean, he's he's um, he's uh, he comes up with a lot of good ideas, but. To, to see some of these patterns that I've used for a, dec- a decade or more and have a, like a reductive implementation of it on Apex. I mean, how do you, you know, some, in some of these patterns, especially like some of the creational patterns are all package-based. So you might have different families of implementations, right? Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, you can do that with Salesforce, but they're, again, they're all dumped in the same thing. You don't really have separate families of implementations of these things. Yeah. Well, the other problem is just the bloat alone into your, well, into your, your one namespace that you right? have. And, and it becomes having having you know well factored patterns takes a backseat to um governor limit efficiency you know um just how many classes i have efficiency there again there's that downward pressure you don't want you have to be really i mean each class is so expensive to create because mm-hmm. it takes up that much space right and there's only this one bucket of them right the more you have the more they get lost yep and that was that was a problem with implementing the framework in the, in the few places where i've actually used it um you know, the, the, the class structure is bloated. You have all these class names and everything has to be, you know, uniquely named. And so you're getting into codifying your names a yep. certain way just to get them to either sort correctly. So, you know, where things are in general, but then you have a lot of redundancy because with these patterns, you have your interface patterns, you have your implementation patterns, you have all these other additional patterns that are lacked on. And these are represented in different classes. So you take one function and it ends up breaking out into five classes. Well, normally you have namespaces and folders and structures and things to kind of help keep that pretty clean. Right. You can name things what they are for that particular namespace because it's all factored in that way, isolated. Um, but in Salesforce, it's all there. It's all there. It's all public. Yeah, exactly. So, and good luck coming in and figuring that out if you weren't part of the original implementation team. I know. But and that's, got- that's another bad thing about some of these patterns and frameworks is is you kind of, you really have to understand them and know how to use them. And this isn't something that's prevalent in the Salesforce development world. So it takes a highly skilled developer to be able to come in and understand them. Yeah, that's true. 
But I was thinking it would be cool to take some of those patterns and look at how they apply to Apex and just talk about that. And maybe even get him on at some point to talk about it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I don't know. Just an idea. We need guests. I, th- I think people are bored of listening to me years. talk. Ah, well, I think, they, I think they hit that point a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> or is it just you? Are you use, using everyone else as an excuse to, to bash me? Yes, yes. This one guy I know who right. has a friend said you sucked. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Yeah. And to that, I say, good day, sir. Good day, sir. Do you know the website number? I, uh, you know, I should have it in front of me, and I don't. It's all funny until they kill us. Ah! Thank you.